please open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 52. I'm reading from verse 14 and 15, the last two verses of Isaiah chapter 52. The title of my message, The Real Passion of Christ. Sometimes people portray things that are not necessarily in total agreement with the scriptures. It would be my intent today to try to bring to you what the Bible says about the real passion, the real sufferings of Christ. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning with verse 14. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Allow me to read that from the Living Bible. Yet many shall be amazed when they shall see him. Yes, even far off nations and their kings, they shall stand dumbfounded, speechless in his presence. For they shall see and understand what they had not been told before. They shall see my servant beaten and blooded, so disfigured one would scarcely know that it was a person standing there so shall he cleanse many nations. Here's a line from the message. But he didn't begin that way. At first, everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured past recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe, taken aback, kings shocked into silence when they shall see him. For what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. And what was unthinkable, they'll have right before them. You may be seated. I really believe that God permitted Mel Gibson to produce the movie, The Passion of Christ, so that this prophecy would actually be taken to every nation on the earth. And the people of the world have stood in amazement as they have seen such shocking scenes of suffering that they could hardly believe their eyes. As the Living Bible said, they shall see my servant beaten and blooded, so disfigured one could scarcely know that it was a person standing there. How would the nations of the world see that? They saw it on screen in the message. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured past recognition. Many of the skeptics and many of the people critical of the movie said it was not possible for a human being to endure such suffering. And yet the Bible clearly says that that suffering took place, that his body was so disfigured it was not even recognizable as a human body. And furthermore, there have been illustrations of torture in, even in our lifetime and down through history where humans have been tortured and their bodies did not even look like human flesh. One of the vivid pictures of the crucifixion and Christ becoming the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world is found in the book of Genesis when Abraham took Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah and they erected an altar, put wood on it. And then Isaac was laid on the altar and Abraham took the knife and prepared to plunge it into Isaac's heart as God had told him to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. God stopped him. He saw that Abraham was willing to give his son as a sacrifice. 
And God provided a ram caught by the horns in the thicket. Abraham took that ram and offered a substitute for his son, Isaac. And the ram's blood was shed, a type of blood being shed for the remission of sin, a type of a divine substitute being given. And friends, I want you to understand what Jesus did at Calvary was a substitutionary death and offering of his life in order that you and I could have forgiveness of sin. Actually, the sufferings of Christ began at the foundation of the world. The Father and the Son thought about it and discussed it, no doubt. For Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 says, The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So before the Father flung the stars from his fingertips, before Jesus laid the foundation of the earth upon nothing and hung the unpillared arcs of the sky out there, they prepared salvation's plan. And the father said, son, we're going to do this and I'm going to create man and put him on the face of the earth, but he's going to fail and it will require a sacrifice. And I'm asking you to go down to earth and live as a man and give your life so that the people's sins can be forgiven. And down through the histories of, of the ages and eternity, the Father and the Son knew that Calvary would come to pass. They could see it. And Jesus was not taken by surprise as his ministry became hated and they planned to crucify him and they took him to Calvary. It was no surprise. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, they sewed fig leaves together and made aprons trying to hide their nakedness. In verse 8, the Bible says they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. People are trying to hide from God with artificial covering. I want to tell you, nothing but the blood of Jesus can take away your sin. Fig leaves are not adequate. In the 21st verse of chapter 3 in Genesis, the Lord God made coats of skin and clothed them. God took a lamb or a goat and shed its blood and took the skins and prepared clothing for Adam and Eve so that their nakedness might be covered. Blood was shed. It was a type of Christ's blood being shed. Do you think Jesus didn't understand that? Even there in the Garden of Eden, he understood that. I'm sure he rehearsed the line that he would say at the Last Supper when he instituted the Lord's Supper. This is my body, which is broken. This is my blood shed for the remission of sins. I believe he rehearsed that line down through the ages. Every time that a lamb was slain in a sacrifice, the sufferings of Christ continued in the garden, but it continued further in the Passover, the lamb would be slain. It must have been painful for Jesus when he saw at the Passover time they took this lamb beginning in Exodus and there in Egypt's bondage and they slew the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and over the lintel. And then every year at Passover time, the Jews would continue that practice at Passover. And every time they would slay that Paschal lamb, Jesus said, this is my body which is broken. This is my blood shed for, the, for many for the remission of sin. 
It must have been painful every time he viewed it as they traveled across the desert in the 40 years of wilderness journey and celebrated at the tabernacle. And then when they entered the promised land and in the temple, when the priests would offer the lamb and shed the blood, Jesus must have felt that. The crushed grain and bitter herbs would represent the unleavened bread and the crushing blows that Jesus would feel at Calvary. The Passover sacrifices would always present a challenge for Jesus to say, thy will be done, thy will be done. Fast forward with me, please, to the events that led up to Calvary. In the 11th chapter of John, verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept as he viewed the mourners at Lazarus' tomb, the people weeping and mourning, lamenting Lazarus' passing. And he'd been dead for days and he was in the tomb. But it was not for the, just for the unbelief over Lazarus. They were forgetting that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. And Jesus must have thought, if they're going to carry on like this at Lazarus' death, how will it be when I'm dead? How will it be when I die? Will they forget that I'm the resurrection and the life? Will they even look forward to Easter? Will there be any thoughts of the resurrection? So he groaned in his spirit as he must have thought about his own death and future resurrection. He grieved over Jerusalem. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered thee as a hen doth gather her, gather her brood under her wings and you would not. He knew they had killed and they had stoned the prophets. Soon they would turn their anger on him and they would kill him. They would crucify him. At the last Passover, in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He said, this is my body. And he passed the bread around and they broke the bread and each one would partake of it. Then he passed the cup with the fruit of the vine and he said, this is my blood which is shed for the remission of sins. Then he said something astounding. He said, one of you will betray me. Twelve men were at that table. One of you will betray me. Each one began to say, is it I? Is it I? Jesus said, it's the one that I give the sop to. And he handed it to Judas. And Judas went out and that night accepted 30 pieces of silver to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priest and said unto them, what will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. I ask you this morning, what will it take for you to betray Jesus? What are you betraying him for? What is so valuable that you would turn your back on Jesus and walk away from Calvary and say, I want to live my own life. I love my money. I love the silver. I love the fame. I love the popularity. I love my job. I love my family. What is it that compels you to go the other direction? When Calvary calls, take up thy cross and follow me. What would you betray Jesus for? Peter said, it sure won't be me. Everyone else may fail, but I won't. I'll be with you to the end. Jesus looked at him and he said, 
Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me thrice. And that night, Peter went out and denied Jesus, lied about it, and cursed. When the cock crowed the second time, Jesus looked out across the temple court and he saw Jesus, he saw Peter. And I don't believe it was a look of condemnation. I believe it was a look of compassion. Peter, I told you, I warned you. You didn't believe that you would fail. And Peter went out into the night and it was a grief-stricken moment for him. Gethsemane was agony for Christ. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38, he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. He went a little further, and he fell on his face. And there he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. He went forward, fell on the ground. He was withdrawn about a stone's throw, kneeled down, prayed. There appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Each one of the gospel writers records what Jesus did at Gethsemane. It was agony. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, it says, Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. The blood began to ooze from the body of Jesus in Gethsemane. Great drops of blood falling to the ground. The betrayal was horrible. Matthew 26, 48. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Can you see that scene? In Gethsemane, Judas knew where to go. He knew where he'd find Jesus. And he led the soldiers there, and he came up with a the sign that he had revealed to the soldiers, whoever I kiss, you will know that's him. Hold him fast. Can you imagine? He betrayed Jesus with a token of love. A kiss is a, an affectionate gesture of love. It never should be a lustful thing, but here it was to express his devotion, his loyalty to his master, but it was a kiss of betrayal. Some of us in our lifestyle are betraying Jesus. We do not stand up for him. We do not let our testimony ring clear. And we betray him as if we didn't even know who he was. As we see and hear his name being taken in profanity, obscenities are used, and his name is slandered. One of our ladies seated here this morning drove up to a drive through window, and the waitress took her order and she was upset at something and she used God's name and then a curse word afterwards. Something happened in that car and this lady said, out of my mouth when she walked back to the window, God does not have a last name. She said, what? God does not have a last name. Oh, and she disappeared. She never brought the order back. Someone else brought the order back to the window. She got the point. People curse. They use God's name in vain. They blaspheme God. Jesus was betrayed with a kiss, a token of love. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53 and verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her sharers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. 
In verse 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53, he was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Mark chapter 14 and verse 50 says, they all forsook him and fled. Not one remained. Every one of the 11 disciples, Judas had already gone. Now then the 11 forsook him and fled. Every one of them. What will you do on this Palm Sunday? Will you be loyal? Will you stick with your Christian testimony? Will you be ashamed of Jesus? Or will you flee into the crowd? You get out of the limelight. You get out of the place where people will question your Christianity. You find a place of comfort, a, a better comfort zone. When you're under fire for your Christian witness, they all forsook him and fled. Jesus felt that rejection. He feels that when you refuse to speak a word for him. He feels that rejection when you walk away from the opportunity to lift him up and to praise him. He feels that rejection when you choose pleasure and the world rather than worship, rather than time with God, rather than time in his word. He feels it. The trial was brutal. They led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Mark tells us in chapter 14 and verse 56, false witnesses accused him. They hired people to come in and give testimony. False witnesses. They accused him of blasphemy. They covered his face with spittle, spit in his face. They buffeted him, slapped him with the palms of their hands. They blindfolded him and smote him on the face. Luke tells us in chapter 23 and verse 1, they led him unto Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate examined Jesus and he said, I find no fault in him. That's my decree. I find no fault in him. Okay, let him go. You're the governor. You have the power. Don't listen to these Jews. Let him go. I find no fault in him. Those words echo down the corridors of time. No one's ever been able to find fault with Jesus. Well, why then don't you serve him? If there is no fault in him, why are you serving the devil? If there is no fault in the Savior... If he did all this for you, why don't you give him your life? What is there about life that's worth selling your soul for? Pilate sent him to Herod, and Herod and his men of war mocked him and sent him again to Pilate. They put a purple robe on him and bowed the knee and worshipped him in Herod's presence. Pilate said, I will chastise him and release him. Oh, I thought you said I find no fault in him. Why then will you chastise? This is not like the whipping we used to get in the cloakroom at school. This was discouraging. This was being tied to the whipping post. This was the cat of nine tails, so to speak, with all those 12 leashes and bone and metal attached to the end, beating a person unmercifully. And many people died with such beating. Why did Pilate say, I find no fault with him, and then I will chastise him, and then I'll release him? Let me ask you that question. Why are you persecuting Jesus? Why are you not living for Jesus? 
Why do you hurt him? By going your own selfish ways. Why do you choose sin and sinful pleasure rather than righteousness and dedication to God? No fault. I will chastise him. They covered his face. They slapped him and beat him on the head. The scourging and the brutal treatment was horrible. 39 stripes times 12, if there was 12 leashes on the whip. That made a total of 468 furrows tore into his flesh. Pilate did it. He said he took Jesus and he scourged him. Then in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 29, they crowned him with a crown of thorns. They smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him, bowing their knees and worshiped him. Those long thorns were driven deep into his brow and blood was coursing down, matting with the spittle in his beard as the crown of thorns were beat into his head by the reed that they were using. Voices of protest claimed that no human being could endure such torture. And yet they denied the very existence of torture like that in our day and time and down through history. The Holy Scripture describes his suffering for us. In Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. The worst pictures of torture that you have ever seen and envisioned, either on film or from historical accounts, the Bible says his visage was marred more than any man. No one ever endured a worse beating than Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 54 and verse 14, just as there were many who appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured that it was beyond that of any, mourn, any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. His bones were out of joint. They plucked out his beard. His strength was dried up. Go with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 22. It's called the Messianic Psalm. And here we have a vivid description, beginning with verse 12. Listen to it. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a postern. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Dogs have compassed me, and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. You can take tweezers and pluck one hair from any part of your body, and it's painful. They took handfuls of his beard and snatched it out of his sacred chin. The spittle and the blood mingled together. Shamefully, he was disgraced in their presence. Again, we look to Isaiah chapter 53, beginning with verse 2. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Remember, we're talking about the real passion of Christ. We're talking about what the Bible says about the sufferings of Jesus. He shall grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He has brought as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her sharers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. The crucifixion was a bloody, horrible scene. It was not a thing of beauty. We talk about the cross and we wear our gold medallions around our neck or on a bracelet and we even depict in church a cross. But it's nothing to reveal the horrible sight on Golgotha's hill that day as Jesus hung on that cross. Yes, his bones were out of joint. He hung there from nine o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon. At noon, the sun refused to shine. The sun was embarrassed at what was revealed. So total darkness for three hours that brought fear to all of the people around. I believe that he bore his cross to Calvary part of the way. The Bible tells us that he did. John 19 and verse 17. He bearing his cross went forth into a place of a skull which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And then the scripture also tells us they compelled Simon of Serene to bear his cross. Apparently, Jesus bore the cross part of the way and may have even fallen underneath the weight of the cross. He'd been up all night in that mock trial. He'd endured the scourging at the whipping post. He endured the crown of thorns and being beaten on the head and slapped with the hands and his beard plucked out. And by this time, his body was weakened. And so he may have struggled and they compelled Simon. But the Bible says they crucified him. Then one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith there came out blood and water. I want to give to you the seven sayings of Jesus while he was on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do to the thief. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. To his mother, woman, behold thy son. To John, behold thy mother. And then he cried out, I thirst. They lifted a sponge with vinegar and water and moistened his lips. He refused the earlier portion that had gall in it that would have been maybe a pain reliever. This time only something to moisten his lips so that he might say triumphantly, it is finished, it is finished. And across the ages echoes that line that brings hope and brings help and comfort is finished. 
What about the finished work of Christ? His blood was sprinkled over the mercy seat. In his spirit and soul, he left that scene, gathered up his blood, and took it into heaven, in the heavenly temple, and sprinkled it over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that is in heaven, in the temple there, and made an atonement for our sins. Our sins were paid for. No more animal sacrifices. Hebrews says in 9 and 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He bowed his head and yielded up the ghost. The cross stands as a silent symbol of the finished work of Christ. The work is complete. Nothing can be added and nothing must ever be subtracted. Salvation is complete. The veil in the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. It was huge. It was massive. A yoke of oxen could not have pulled it apart and split it. It was split from the top to the bottom, showing that God did it, not man. And that represented access. Now, we don't have to send a priest. Our heavenly priest, our high priest, went into the holiest of holies and sprinkled his blood. And the veil has been rent. Now, you and I have access. We have access. In the name of Jesus. Behold, the veil in the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks were rent. A violent convulsion shook the earth at this moment. The temple was not split in two, as is suggested, and sections collapsing. We sing with humble dedication the old rugged cross. And I want our musicians to come back and our singers and in a moment, we'll sing that again. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. It doesn't end there. The third day, early, after the Sabbath was passed, on the first day of the week, the women made their way to the tomb. They talked among themselves. Who shall roll for us away the stone? We don't know how we'll ever get in there to prepare his body. It was such a rush thing because Sabbath was coming on and we didn't finish our job. Who's going to roll the stone away? An eerie silence had settled over Calvary. The crowd had dissipated and left after the crucifixion because of the Sabbath. And now then, everyone waited until the Sabbath was over and the women make their way back there. The silence was broken only by the muttering of the soldiers. They trembled and they shook and to hide their fears, they gambled and they bid on the robe, the seamless robe of the Lord Jesus Christ. Suddenly there was an earthquake and an angel came and roll the stone away. And when the women arrived, there was an angel inside, there were angels outside. And they saw the empty tomb, the message that we rejoice over because the tomb does not have a body. I've been to Jerusalem 
And I've been to Gordon's tomb in the garden where they surmised that possibly Jesus may have been in that very hole in the rock. And it's a feeling that you can't describe when you go into there and the marble slab there, or the stone slab, and you envision the body of Jesus there. When in an unhurried fashion on Easter Sunday morning, he takes the napkin off his face, folds it, lays it on the shelf, and then rises right through all the wrappings of the, the linen that had wound around his body. And we find him now, not in the tomb, but standing, the resurrected, living Christ, alive forevermore. And we can sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Praise God. Sing with us, the old rugged cross. On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and I love that old cross. That old cross where the tears for a world of lost sinners was So I'll cherish the old lukewarm and indifferent you need to come back to Jesus if you've never been saved you need Jesus in your life if there's a great spiritual need that's raging in your life and out of control you need to let God fix it for you with bowed heads and eyes closed how many will slip your hand up and say pastor I really have some situations I need a miracle about raise your hand quickly wherever you are Wherever you are, make your way to this altar right now. Slip out and come down here and kneel at this altar quickly. Come on, everyone that listens.